When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. I'm Stephanie Safarian, and this is episode 105. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello there and welcome back. On today's show, we are discussing exactly what happens when you drop off something at Goodwill or another donation center. So we've all done it, right? We've left a box of stuff with the clerk at Goodwill. We have the best intentions for that box of stuff. We just expect that it's going to fall into the hands of someone who's looking exactly for what we're giving away right? We all do it. We all have the best intentions for our donations. We're taking the step to donate them instead of trash these things. So right off the bat, we think we're doing the right thing. But are we? What actually happens to our stuff? And what is the probability that our stuff falls into worthy recipients' hands? On today's show, I am talking with journalist and author, Adam Minter. Adam Minter's recently published book titled Second Hand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale takes a deep dive into what happens to stuff that is donated. Where does it really go? How much goes straight to the landfill? Adam is on the show today to demystify the donation process for you and me so that as we donate in the future, we can do so with intention. Enjoy the interview. Adam, thank you so much for joining me to talk all about your new book. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm really thrilled to talk to you about what happens really to all those things that we drop off at the donation center and just, you know, assume are in capable hands. But before we even talk about what goes on behind that door, I want to know how on earth did you get to thinking about reuse? Well, it it really goes back to uh, my earliest years. I I actually grew up in a family uh, scrap metal yard. My uh, great-grandfather came to the United States and and became a rag picker, literally what it sounds like. He was picking rags off the streets of Galveston, Texas, and and that slowly became a a family recycling business. And so uh, I grew up around it. Some of my earliest memories are are being in the family sort of scrap metal warehouse. And, And you quickly become aware of a lot of 
things uh, if you grow up around that environment. One, it's dangerous. Don't let your toddlers run around a, a scrapyard. But the other thing you, you quickly learn is that there's more value in stuff that you can reuse than in stuff that you can recycle. And so, you know, as I grew up around the scrap warehouse, I learned very quickly from my father and from my grandmother in particular to keep our eyes open for things that people were bringing to us for recycling, but which we could pull out of the junk pile, if you will, and, and basically resell it as something that could be reused. So it was always in the back of my mind. I mean, as, as much as anything has been ingrained in me, um, that was that was ingrained in me. And so I as as somebody who report I you know, I grew up around the business, I worked in it for a while, and then I, I started reporting on the business almost two decades ago. And, you know, I always took an interest not just in the recycling side of things, but I was always very curious about the the businesses that did what we did, which was kept their eyes open for things that could be reused um, and resold. And it's good business. We all know that. You can make more money that way. But it's also um, really good for the environment in the sense that um, if something's being reused, it means somebody isn't buying a new thing and you aren't you know, demanding the raw materials to make that new thing. So, so it's attractive to me on both ends. So it really goes back a long way for me. Hmm. I know that your mother passed away, and I'm, my sincere apologies for that, uh, but I know that as you and your sister were sifting through her things and trying to decide what to do with her things that really encompassed her identity and really, you know, you necessarily didn't want or couldn't store, you and your sister had some trouble dealing with your deceased mother's things. And I feel like that's a real common conundrum for many of us. So how did you set us up here? How did you find yourself at Goodwill with your mother's China? Sure. Well, it's it's funny, you know, my my whole life, you know, up until a few years ago, I I you know, I tended to look at waste and recycling and reuse, you know, really from from the perspective of somebody who'd grown up around it as a business. Now, I certainly consider myself an environmentalist, but I'd never really thought of it in 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 personal terms outside of, you know, I personally put this can in the blue recycling bin in the kitchen. And then, as you said, um, my mother passed away, and my sister and I were both living in very small spaces. My sister lived with her husband in a co-op in New York, and my wife and I at that time were living in a one-bedroom apartment in Shanghai. And though my mother um, didn't have a very large home, like most Americans, she had acquired things over the years, everything from you know her school papers to an old desktop to computer to the chair she loved to sit in. And it was up to my sister and I to figure out what to do with these things. And it was a very painful process because uh, if you don't have room for that stuff in your home, you're, you, you sort of uh, you, you don't have any excuses. You suddenly have to say to yourself, well, this chair meant something to my mother, but I, it really doesn't mean that much to me other than the fact that it made, meant something to my mother. So we have to learn to let go of it. And when you let go of things like that, you're not just letting go of things, but you are starting to let go of this identity, uh, this person that you knew. Because in contemporary uh, consumer societies, and it's not just the United States, I mean, it's, it's really all over the world, we become an accumulation of the things that we want and acquire, you know, whether it be favorite sweaters, whether it be pieces of jewelry, all that stuff defines our history 
history as human beings. And so as you, as you decide to get rid of those things or you decide to keep those things, uh, you're, you're taking apart that identity of, of yourself and that person you care about. And so my sister and I, it took us about a year of me coming into town, her coming into town. And one, one afternoon, uh, we were both in the Twin Cities and you know, we said, okay, this is the last bit of stuff. It was in a relative's garage. We need to do something with this. And we decided, you know, the various papers and this and that, which could go into the recycling bin, didn't need to be kept. And we got down to the China. And we knew she loved it, but my sister has her own China. She lives in New York. I was not going to transport it to uh, Shanghai. And so we sort of reached this impasse of me saying to my sister, you take it. And she's saying to me, no, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. You take it. Back and forth. Neither of us wanted to let go of this thing that meant so much to my mother. And after realizing neither of us wanted it, uh, we said, okay, it's time to go to Goodwill with it. With the assumption that somebody at Goodwill or Goodwill itself is going to be able to find the person who will reuse it. And so that's what we did. We drove to a Goodwill in Hopkins, Minnesota. It's a drive through And as we were waiting in the line in our car, watching people unload their things, um, I, we were the next ones in line. And I suddenly realized this is what my next book should be about because I'm somebody who writes about waste and recycling. I've been doing it for years, um, but I've never seen anybody write what happens to that stuff once you leave it at a Goodwill. And so I literally took a picture with my phone right then and there. And it's actually at the top of my Twitter account right now, um, at Adam Minter. Um, and that was the moment when I realized that I was going to go on this journey and figure out what happens to that stuff when it disappears through that donation door. Hmm. Well, you bring up a really important point there, which is that nobody really knows what happens to our stuff or our used-to-be stuff when we drop it off. But I would even maybe take that a step further to say that we just assume that the good workers at Goodwill or Salvation Army or wherever else, we just assume that they're going to take care of it and they're going to put it in the hands of somebody who needs it and wants it and will love on it like we or our relatives did. But is that really the case? No. The short answer is no. Um, you know, you can be assured, if we're just talking about Goodwill, you can be assured that when you drop something off at Goodwill, Goodwill is very interested in seeing it reused. You know, it doesn't, Goodwill as an organization, just to be clear, is, you know, it's about 160 independent Goodwill federations around the United States and Canada. So, and they, they all have their own territory. And then there's a governing organization in DC, but each of them do things independently. But if you drop something off, they want to find somebody who wants to buy it. Um, because if they can't find somebody who wants it, um, it becomes a cost for them. They have to pay for it to go to a landfill or they have to pay for the trucking that takes it to a recycling center. So they have a, they have an interest in seeing that the value of your things is maximized. The problem is, especially in contemporary North America, really, uh, is that we are tossing out more things, bringing more stuff to Goodwills that any that anybody can possibly use in North America. We are enormous consumers of durable goods. I point out in the book that uh, the number of durable goods, and durable goods is a general term for everything from smartphones to sofas, anything that you buy that's expected to last some period of time. Annual spending on durable goods over the last half century has increased 20-fold. 
um, by Americans. So it tells you just how much is, is there. And there's even, you know, even if it's all really good stuff, even if it's the most high quality stuff, there still aren't enough people interested in buying it secondhand. Um, and that's, uh, brings up the, you know, the figure that I bring up in the book, which is that only about one third of the stuff that actually goes onto the shelves at a Goodwill sells. That means the other two thirds is left to Goodwill to figure out what to do with them. Now, there's, you know, there have been people who uh, think, well, that means it all goes to the landfill or an incinerator. No, that's not the case at all. But it just becomes harder and more expensive for Goodwill to sell that stuff. Um, some of it, you know, will go to what's called an outlet center where Goodwill sells it then by the pound. It's basically heavily discounted after it's been on the shelves in the retail stores. If it doesn't sell there, there are export markets around the world which are very interested in good quality exported North American goods, especially clothes, but it can also be electronics. So there's there's various places that it can go, but it's not as simple as, well, I drop it off and Goodwill's going to find the right poor person to take it. There aren't enough poor people out there to take all that secondhand stuff. And even if there were, the cost of bringing it to so-called you know underprivileged people uh, is very high and it wouldn't make sense for Goodwill to do it. It would actually become a money loser for them and it would, it would actually make sense more sense for somebody to to figure out another way to get this stuff to folks. So so it's it's very difficult, but Goodwill has developed over the years um, systems and markets that allow it, for the most part, to get the stuff to the places where it's most wanted and to do so affordably. So walk me through what happens behind the curtain at Goodwill. I know you mentioned that you would actually and very literally follow a dropped-off donation box to the sorting center. What does that look like? Sure, sure. So um, let me uh, let me be very specific. Um, I spent time at the Goodwill of Southern Arizona system, which is um, just as it sounds like it's a Goodwill Federation whose territory is Southern Arizona, and it has 16 stores. And so I spent a considerable amount of time literally standing or sitting at the donation door, watching things go through that door into the sorting rooms in Southern Arizona. Some Goodwills may do things slightly differently, but but generally they work on balance in the same way. So what happens when a box goes through, you know, uh, the door there? Um, the first thing that's going to happen is it's going to be sorted into certain categories. It may be sorted into apparel. It may be sorted into um, textiles like bed sheets. If it's hard goods, which could be everything from dishes to pots and pans um, to, you know, a scale to, um, you know, small furniture, It'll be sorted into that. There's all these different categories. Um, and uh, after it's initially sorted, um, it'll wait there until it is rolled in at Goodwill Southern Arizona. They keep them in what they call cages, which is just tall carrying bins to where uh, the actual trained sorting people are there to look at and decide if it's merchandise or not. Um, and what they will do is they will they will empty that cage by hand and go through everything. If something is broken, if it's soiled, I mean, it's it's going to go generally into into the trash, um, you know. And it's and it's really kind of depressing. One of the things that really frustrated me as I you know stood at the donation doors at Goodwill is watching how many people actually use Goodwill as, as like a trash receptacle, and they would literally put trash in in their in the in the donations. But more often than not, that's not the case. But things will be sorted out. If it's broken, you know, it's it's not going to end up on the shelves. It may end up in a recycling bin. Um, in terms of clothing, if clothing is soiled, 
It may uh, immediately be diverted um, to a textile recycler who might turn that textile into rags. Um, but if, if we're just going to talk about apparel, textiles that are in reasonably good condition upon first visual inspection will then be subjected to a more careful sorting. And this is where things are, are fun and very interesting. Um, you'll have uh, sorters who spend their day going through these, these boxes of clothing. They will feel them to see what you know the quality of the fabric is. They will check the brands and they will, at least in Arizona, they have a flow chart on the wall, which will say, you know, if this is brand X, it should be priced at say $2.99, um, assuming that it's in good condition. Um, and, and so they will, they will check off that, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's always so objective. I mean, one of the things that I was repeatedly told in the sorting rooms at Goodwill is that, you know, these brands are declining in quality. So brand X, maybe two years ago was a $2.99 brand, but you got to be careful and feel that fabric now and look at the stitching because it may not last, you know, three, four or five washes anymore. And it may instead get sent to a rag recycler or if it's or a rag cutter, or if it's in really bad condition, we may just have to trash it. And then that stuff goes, goes out onto the sorting floor. And, you know, there's, you know, different categories, you know, have different, um, flow charts. Um, a lot of the uh, pricing is left up to the subjective judgment of the of the production workers at Goodwill. You know, sorting isn't really called sorting, it's called production because you're producing a product for the sales floor. You know, the higher value items, collectibles, that kind of thing quickly gets diverted to an entirely different department where they spend a lot more time uh, pricing it. They may look at recent market prices on eBay. Um, they will find different ways to, uh, you know, it's interesting. You can't sell one silver chain at Goodwill, but if you put, say, 10 of them together, people will, and put them in a plastic bag, people are interested in buying them. And so they're always looking for ways to get people to buy things that, uh, that they otherwise wouldn't want to buy. So it's quite sophisticated. Well, you just touched on a point that you mentioned in the book, which is that at Goodwill, there is an abundance of quantity. There's a ton of stuff, right? But there's a crisis in quality. So I need to ask, what happens to the cheap stuff, the cheap clothes made of polyester, the cheap IKEA furniture? Where do those things go? Sure. Well, you know, say a, a flat pack uh, uh, bookshelf like you would get at an IKEA, or you, you know, you find them at Target and other you know mass market retailers. Um, you know, if something like that comes through. Yeah, first of all, it's it's probably not coming through in good condition. If you've ever tried to move an IKEA bookshelf, you know, in a moving van, you know, you go over one bump in the road, one pothole, and the thing shatters. And so, um, if something comes into Goodwill and it's you know it's a cracked IKEA bookshelf, it's going right into the dumpster. There's no market for that. Nobody wants that cracked particle board stuff. And so, all this very low quality furniture, there's no recycling option for it. I mean, you can't you can't really recycle particle board. So it's going it's going into the dumpster and it's bound for or a, uh, a landfill um, or an incinerator. And that's, that's a really, really sad story, but, but there's just nobody's going to buy it. It just ends up taking up space. Similarly with really low quality clothing. So that, that's an interesting uh, problem. Some of that stuff, that low quality clothing can be sold to rag cutters and people who will turn it into a stuffing for pillows and couches. And so in many cases, Goodwill can package that stuff, but it's not going as a product and sell it. But a couple of important points to that one, it's not going to go, um, 
it's not going to go to the reuses that, you know, maybe the people dropping it off thought it would. It's not going to go to folks, you know, in your community who need clothes because those folks don't want cheap clothes that falls apart either. Um, and it's not going to, uh, you know, it's certainly not going to be exported because, uh, uh, you know, folks in Africa, for example, West Africa, East Africa are major, major importers of secondhand U.S. clothing. They don't want the cheap stuff. They want good stuff, too. So the reuse is actually going to be sort of uh, an end use, which is stuffing, you know, or maybe uh, made into rags. But that's a problem for uh, the charities because they aren't going to make as much money on it. Uh, in some cases, they're going to uh, see it as they're going to view it as a cost. They're going to need to pay for the trucking. And so they will then need to make up for that loss of revenue in some other way, you know, hopefully by collecting, you know, better stuff. But it but it becomes a real problem and it's a growing problem. Their costs are going up. The charities are their costs are going up as the quality of stuff declines. And, um, you know, the amount of low of high quality stuff becomes scarcer and scarcer, the stuff that they can actually sell for a decent margin to keep their operations going. I'm particularly interested in what happens to electronics that get donated. Televisions or DVD players or all the cords, you know, that accompany these electronics. Because technology, it goes out of date so quickly. So what happens to those items when we drop them off? Sure. Well, if we're just talking about Goodwill, um, Goodwill has a program uh, with Dell Computer. And so electronics that are obsolete or can no, uh, or broken, uh, they will go to Dell, which maintains recycling partnerships and has its own recycling operations, uh, where they ensure that this stuff is recycled in a safe manner. It's possible to recycle things in an unsafe way. I, we've all seen the videos of people setting fire to things and breathing in the dioxins and other chemicals that come with it. Um, you know, the partnership that Goodwill has with Dell w- ensures that that doesn't happen. But Goodwill's uh, preference is to do what, um, you know, my family and in, in our scrapyard uh, did, which was it always is looking for stuff that's reusable that people will want. And that stuff will go on to shelves and hopefully uh, somebody will buy it and it will be loved and and used uh, longer than the original user uh, wanted it. And so they're always on the lookout for that kind of thing. So Goodwill, um, they've got a pretty good system. Now, you know, as we all know, the majority of electronics, um, uh, old electronics, obsolete electronics in the United States and Canada is not uh, donated to um, Goodwill. A, a lot of it remains in our desk drawers, kitchen drawers, you know, that that iPhone 3 that's still in the drawer and you don't know what to do with it. You know, that stuff remains there. Um, and there are other types of donation services out there. You can drop them off oftentimes with governments and counties. And and that becomes very uh, a very interesting system. Americans don't use generally their electronics through their usable lifespan. In many cases, they stop using them, you know, with smartphones after three years. But if you spend time in places like Emerging Asia, where I live, uh, if you go to Africa, where I spent time for this book, you regularly see eight, nine, ten-year-old uh, smartphones, dumb phones actually are still in use in these regions older laptops, older desktops, things that would be trashed in the United States and wealthy countries still in use. I describe in the book at one point, uh, 
visiting a television repairman in northern Ghana who was working on a it was a 30 35 year old tube television and so uh, and they import these things and they and uh, you have actual uh, buyers from these regions in Southeast Asia in China in West Africa looking around the developed world for places they can buy electronics that can e- that are either broken and can be repaired in emerging markets or are just don't have a market anymore because Americans want newer stuff and they import them and and that's a really great thing because it means that these things last longer than if they just stayed in the wealthy you know the affluent countries where they originally purchased so it's it's a really great thing and it's a it's a fantastic way to ensure that we don't stress the environment as much because uh, our goods even if we don't want to use them somebody else uh, maybe of lesser economic circumstances continues to want to use them and repair them I have to ask you, because I think that you were researching for this book during the Marie Kondo Netflix series, and I read countless articles in the press about how the series and Marie Kondo prompted so many Americans to just drop off boxes and boxes full of unwanted stuff at Donation Centered. So I'm wondering... What has Marie Kondo and her decluttering movement meant for Goodwill? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's absolutely the case that Goodwill saw a huge surge in uh, donations uh, during sort of that January February period where where the show was sort of at its uh, peak of popularity, and it it had a couple of consequences. One, I mean, Goodwills want donations. Um, you know, they thrive on donations. They need them because they need good stuff. And the more donations that come through, there's more opportunity to find good stuff in there. And it was an interesting phenomenon because uh, people who had never cleaned out their homes uh, or had not done it in a long time, uh, they were going and digging into closets and basements and attics and garages, and they were pulling out older things. And, and you know, we all know this, you know, stuff that was manufactured 10 years ago is generally, I mean, I wouldn't want to generalize too much, but it's generally of higher quality than what we're able to buy now. And so it meant a, a flood of better quality stuff than what's typically flowing through the doors of these Goodwills. And so, so it was a really nice opportunity for for goodwill to get uh, some stuff that they could sell for for and generate revenue from and 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 you know use on their programs they are primarily focused on helping people get jobs and education so that that really helped their what they call their mission it was also stressful to some extent because uh, uh goodwills like any uh you know nonprofit or for-profit business they only have a limited amount of space a limited amount of warehouse space a limited amount of space at these donation centers and some of them were just absolutely bursting at the seams uh, because people were bringing so much stuff in but on balance i think most goodwills will tell you it was a blessing. Um, it meant more donations and it meant better stuff. Um, it's also uh, dropped off, um, you know, since, you know, January and February. Um, but, you know, Goodwill is accustomed to this. I mean, they they definitely have their periods of, of high donations and low donations. I mean, you know, there's a spring cleaning period. There is the post-Christmas period as well, where people just want to clean out. And so they see donations then. So it wasn't entirely new to Goodwill to see a surge in donations and have their warehouses packed, but it was just sort of, um, it was a little bit off the calendar, but they managed and it, it worked out well for them. I want to almost switch gears and talk about the impact of consumerism on the environment, because on the surface for you and I, the modern, well, Western consumer, consumerism feels great, right? Because we're getting 
so wildly wealthy as a society that we can just toss things that aren't working instead of repair it. We can just donate our perfectly good stuff and buy new stuff that's shinier and newer. But you call the other side of consumerism, the dark side of consumerism. And I love that term because a major aspect of that dark side is what overconsumption is doing to our planet. What in your view are the environmental implications of our collective overconsumption? Sure. Well, I, I may surprise you with this answer because I'm I'm a journalist who's spent years focused on waste and recycling. But you know, my my when we talk about the environmental side of it, you know, the waste and recycling side is certainly important. But to me, that's not the big impact. The big impact is on the production side, on the manufacturing side. And if you look at what's called the life cycle assessment, that's when uh, you have you know a, a scientist or a social scientist or economist. They will go through um, the life of a product from from you know production, from extraction of raw materials, all the way to final disposition, say in a in a garbage plant. If you look at most life cycle assessments of products, whether it be a car or a phone, most of the carbon emissions associated with that product are during the production process. So I was just looking at the uh, life cycle assessment that Apple admirably puts out for its iPhone, the iPhone 11 Pro, 83% of the carbon emissions associated with the full lifetime of an iPhone 11 Pro come during the production period, you know, during manufacturing, during the extraction of the raw materials materials, the aluminum, the stainless steel, the copper, the gold that make that thing. You know, the consumer who's using that thing, you know, their use is, is relatively small. You know, the, you know, the recycler, uh, the waste disposition, the water damaged, uh, the air quality worsened during that period is very small. The really big impact is in making the stuff and extracting the raw materials. And I don't think that's fully appreciated. And it's not something that, you know, manufacturers like to talk about. About very much. I mean, one of the reasons you see manufacturers so keen to talk about recycling and waste and what they're doing about it is it's a relatively small part of their environmental footprint. The biggest part of their footprint is making the stuff. You know, that's where we get down to the real impacts of consumerism. Every time you're upgrading that phone, every time you know you need that new coffee maker, whatever it is, and I, I don't want to be judgmental, but I do want people to think about what that environmental impact is. And you know, yes, you may have the low energy coffee maker, but you certainly didn't have the low energy extraction of the steel and the copper from the mine that makes that coffee maker. And so so when I think about the impact of consumerism, I think about the open pit copper mines I've seen in uh, Indonesia. I think about the copper mines that they're talking about digging near Voyagers National Park in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in northern Minnesota. I think about those kinds of things, and that's the real environmental impact of consumerism. It sounds like you're saying, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it is keep your stuff for as long as possible and buy less. Would that be accurate? Keep your stuff as long as possible, buy less, and, and this is a really important corollary, if you're going to buy, buy good stuff. Buy stuff that's going to last. You know, we all know, you know, the difference between, say, the microwave oven that you know isn't going to last a year and a half and the one that you're pretty sure is going to last 10 years. Get that one. Ugh, that is such a perfect endpoint to this conversation, but I just want to kind of give a thought of my own here, which is that as a society, right, we are so wealthy, we are so affluent that we can buy whatever we want with the click of a mouse, 
yet we are constantly buying the cheaper model. And I wonder how to change the conversation from using our wealth to buy the best and buy the thing that's going to last as opposed to (laughs) we're always so penny pinching for the cheapest, for the cheaper microwave or for the cheaper blender or for the cheaper clothes. Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I do. Um, and, and I think to some extent, you know, it's just it's teaching sort of basic home economics, if you will, and, and making home economics available to more people. In the book, I talk about uh, something that's been explored pretty extensively and studied in the European Union called durability labeling. And the idea is a really simple one. And that is that manufacturers should put labels on their products, which tell you how long they expect them to last. Um, Now, this can take many forms. You know, it could mean an apparel manufacturer putting a a label on on a garment saying this will last, say, 10 washes, um, you know, in in a standard washing machine. Or it may be a washing machine manufacturer saying that our motors that, you know, power this washing machine are designed to last X number of thousands of cycles. And when you give that kind of information to consumers and allow them to compare not just the price, but how long a product is expected to last for that price, um, studies are very clear that consumers will buy the product that lasts longer. They will spend more. Now, they're not, it's not an infinite amount they're going to spend more, but if you allow them to make that calculation and say, huh, for spending 20% more, I'm going to get something that lasts 50% longer, many of them, those who at least who can, you know, are in a position to afford it, uh, will make that choice. And in a sense, we all can afford it. I mean, this is something I was taught at a very young age. And, and I'm, I believe I'm not holding myself out as a saint. Um, but, you know, spend more up front. So you spend less over the long haul. That's basic home economics, you know, managing your home's finances. And I think that's a really great, really consumer friendly place to start. And what's exciting about that to me and durability labeling is you don't necessarily have to beat consumers over the head about the environmental impact. You can go to consumers and say, this is in your interest as a consumer. You will save more money if you have access to more information about how long a product will last. So they're looking at doing this in the European Union. There have been tests, there have been studies, and I'm, I would really love to see uh, that kind of thing spread because I think it's both good for the environment and good for consumers and their pocketbooks. Hmm. I look forward to keeping my ear out for what happens with durability labeling because it seems to be the missing piece that we as consumers need to make informed decisions. Adam, where can listeners find your book? So thanks for asking that. Um, Secondhand is available basically anywhere that you like to buy your books at all the regular online outlets, Amazon to BNN, um, to any independent bookstores. And I, I always like to give a plug to the independent bookstores because they've been very supportive of me. So uh, independent bookstores across North America are offering it. So you can find it in those places. And you can also find it uh, as an audiobook on anywhere that you would listen to audiobooks. It's also available in public libraries all over the United States and Canada. And public libraries have been incredibly supportive of the book. And and I'm really grateful to them for making it available to such a wide array of people. Thank you so much for coming on the show all the way from the other side of the world and talking to us about what really happens to the stuff we donate. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. There you have it, my friends. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Adam Minter. I have linked to Adam Minter's website as well as places 
where you can find his book, Secondhand Adventures in the New Global Garage Sale, in this week's show notes. Now this week's show notes, you can find them at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 105. That's M-A-M-A minimalist.com forward slash 105. On next week, I promised it a few weeks back, we're here, it's time. We are discussing once and for all greenwashing, what it is, how we can spot it, and how we can avoid it. I will see you then. Have an awesome week. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.